0: And I'm Dave. And you're listening to The Doctor Who Show for the month of April. Dave, hello! Hello, how are you? I'm very well. How, how about yourself? Uh, look,
1: um, to be perfectly honest, compared to a lot of people, I'm doing perfectly well and mm. really have nothing to complain about. So, um, counting my blessings in that sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm working from home, although I have been on leave of late as well. So, um, I'm, I'm very much a homebody at the present.
1: Yes, I'm mixing a couple of office days and a few work-from-home days. That's the way we're working. I'm very, very busy, but look, as I say, in the grand scheme of things, I've got nothing to complain about, and I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for people who are stuck at home, whether in quarantine or just in lockdown, we put out a couple of weeks ago now, gosh, a podcast of Decision 3, Dave, that you recorded with the 42 to Doomsday guys down there in Victoria, uh, obviously before lockdown and everything.
1: Yeah, that's right. We have been sitting on that for a little while, waiting for a good space to uh, open up that we could send it out. And that occurred last month. And I must admit, listening back to that, it brought back some happy memories. I had a lot of fun recording that one. And I hope people listening to it have just as much fun.
0: Yeah, they are fun, the podcasts podcast decision, I must say.
1: <laughs> we enjoy doing them, yes. Just something different.
0: Good-o. Now, before we crack on with the news, we always read out any new Apple podcast reviews, Dave. So I've got one here over the past month. This comes from Oscar Grouchos, who also talks to us a lot on Twitter. Uh, I've got to say Oscar Grouchos. Uh, he entitles this review, The Timeless Hoovians," which I call which I quite like. He says, never less than an utter delight to listen to. The warmth and camaraderie between these two most ardent of Huvians shines through and makes each episode a delight to delve into. Their passion for the subject matter is apparent and allows for some surprising reflection and erudite criticism, where justified, that only adds to the richness of the finished product. It's a delight to spend time in their company. You will feel amongst friends. Highly recommended.
1: Well, thank you very much. That's very, very kindly worded.
0: Yeah, that was, that's a lovely review. And if if you have a review for us, please uh please get them up on Apple Podcasts. Rob. Yes. Do we have any news this month? We do, Dave. Not not a whole lot, but there are some interesting things happening. I'll I'll kick off with this one. Uh Emily Cook is a radio producer over in the UK who also writes a bit for DWM. And when, you know, lockdowns and quarantines and stuff started with COVID, she said, hey, let's watch episodes of Doctor Who and and tweet along and I'll get, you know, people I know to sort of come along and, and help out. And... I can't remember who she got first whether it was Stephen Moffat to tweet along with the 50th or Russell T to tweet along with another story but whatever it was she has started getting some really big names to jump on Twitter and tweet along while an episode is played you know people play it on their DVD players or Blu-ray players at home and people have a lot of fun doing this I haven't been able to take part because it happens at some ungodly hour of the morning for us yeah it's usually
1: about 4am for us
0: yeah but these are becoming bigger than Ben Hur there was one recently that had Barrowman and I think uh, Freema Agyeman and and all sorts of people involved. David, David, David Tennant, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it's quite amazing. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like this happening around the place. And I'm wondering, without the virus, would this be happening? And I don't think it would. I, I, I'm not saying we should have a virus in order to get this great stuff, but isn't it strange you know, that this stuff appears when we have this crisis?
1: Look, it is that sense of a community coming together to look after each other and entertain each other and, and use each other's extra spare time, whether that's because they're unfortunately working less or mm. their commuting is, is less or non-existent or projects have been cancelled. And so you get, I guess, somebody like John Barriman or David Tennant or Davies or Moffat who... Perhaps have more spare time than they do, and do want to foster a sense of community, and Doctor Who's fandom is a great way to do that. I mean, Russell T Davies wasn't on Twitter; he got on Twitter to do these.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, And something else he did—he penned this little piece. I don't know what you'd call it. It's called "Farewell, Sarah Jane," uh, where he sort of has a, a guy narrating, sort of a Sarah Jane funeral as it were, and then sort of spliced in a, a bits from like Katie Manning and, and some of the actors from um, the Sarah Jane adventures sort of having their say about Sarah Jane. And it's this interesting little coda to the life of Sarah Jane Smith. Have you seen this yet?
1: I have. I actually woke up in the middle of the night, about half an hour after it came out in the UK, and just happened to see my Twitter feed was kind of full of all these sort of things. So despite it being Three in the morning, I actually just stopped and watched it there and then, and it was incredibly well done. It, it is just this narration of the funeral of Sarah Jane. But yeah, with all these guest actors and actresses, as you said, Katie Manning comes in, Sophie Aldred comes in, most mm. of the cast of the Sarah Jane adventures come in. But also, the narrator talks about other characters that were at the funeral, and you know, Barbara and Ian came along, or there was this couple that had done this, or this person who'd done this, and not even named sometimes, we just go, oh wow, that's so and so. Or, you know, the reference to um, Ace leaving, or Dorothy McShane, as he calls her, her, her actual name, mm. you know, leaving with K9 um, you know, that's quite wonderful. I must say, one of the things that I got out of it was Tommy Knight, who plays Luke Smith, who was always good in the series. It just shows how completely wasted he is in, um, in the Victoria miniseries because he gets sort of, you know, two lines of episode in that, but he is so good in this, as are many others.
0: Mm hmm. I was really uh, impressed by it. And again, it's something that I think is born of this current environment that, that may not have ever happened, uh, well, at least like this, at any other time.
1: No, and again, it's people who have a bit more time and want to contribute to the community. Something not Doctor Who related but that I watched last week was the whole cast and the original uh, showrunner of The Nanny did a cast reading of episode one of The Nanny that they put up on YouTube. Oh, Wow. So that was, you know, that was just something really fun that you you could see all these people basically stuck at home in New York and LA, just recorded Mm. this, this thing and put it together.
0: Yeah. And particularly musicians as well are just, you know, turning on cameras and just playing and, you know, like Paul Simon, I've, I've seen so many Paul Simon songs in the last week. He just gets his acoustic out, bangs out a few songs. And thank you very much. I'm like, this is great I don't think I would have seen this otherwise yeah so it's a very different
1: time and anyone listening to this episode in sort of three or four years time or ten years time maybe it's hard to describe what it's like right now but, yeah. but that's that's it on a more traditional news note though mm, yes um, we've always been at this podcast very big fans of the target books and particularly that new range that has been coming out and I noticed the other day whilst going to by a certain ex-prime minister's autobiography, that <laughs> that uh, there was some new Doctor Who content up on my the, the website I used to buy books. So titles that are apparently coming out on the twenty eighth of July include a new novelisation of Dalek, The Witchfinders, and The Crimson Horror, all by their TV authors, mm-hmm. plus paperbacks in the Target format of the TV movie and the Pirate Planet, and I think there are a couple of others that you found, Rob.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because I've been waiting for the two Eric Sayward Dalek stories to come out in paperback just so I can have them all in paperback uh, and I said, hey, uh, they, they're not listing them there on that Australian site the, these paperbacks, I went to Book Depository and I found them there, so they are certainly coming out uh, mid-year as well, if you've been holding off on getting those, and I, I wouldn't blame you if you are, because they're not particularly well written, <laughs> and they do have some very strange moments in them, which I won't spoil here, uh,
1: and terrible covers in the hardback format.
0: And, and terrible covers in the hardback format. Hopefully they get better covers for the paperbacks. We'll, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, so they're coming as well. So, look, at about 20 bucks a pop Australian, this is not a cheap addition to the bookshelf by any means. It's, you know, probably a lazy 100 bucks or so. But, you know, it's good stuff.
1: Yeah, and look, I'm very excited, particularly for Rob Shearman writing Dalek. I think that's going to be a very good book. I'm really looking forward to that one particularly.
0: Oh, absolutely. And look, the Crimson Horror too. I know uh, it's a bit of a Marmite episode in terms of what was on telly, but I actually like that TV episode. It's one of my favourite Gaddis stories. And so to read him write that in prose, I think that could be really good too.
1: Well, you say it's a Marmite episode and you're right because I'm on the other side of that equation. (laughs) But I do enjoy Gaddis's written work quite a lot. So this could be a very new way that I might find I enjoy the, the story.
0: mm very good. Moving along, this is also a bit of a a prose type thing. Now, I thought Paul Cornell had stopped writing Doctor Who, Dave. Um... A few years back, he was doing a Pertwee-era comic, and it was sort of like, this is the last thing I write for Doctor Who because I'm I'm just going to concentrate on my own stuff. You know, quite fairly, too. You know, he's not getting any younger. He wants to concentrate on his own worlds, But he does keep seeming to come back to Doctor Who every now and then. Yes. And he's, he's penned this uh, short story with the Whittaker Doctor and her companions. It's a tie-in with, again... COVID and everything that's happening at the moment because the doctor and companions are in isolation in the story. And it's, it's a, it's a lovely little short story. He gets the character of Whitaker pretty, pretty well in prose and um, I enjoyed reading it.
1: Oh, that's good. Uh, another and final COVID inspired, I guess you could say news piece because mm. uh, let's face it, it is, it is dominating. Yes. The, the BBC are putting together some virtual learning programs, particularly for people who are off school and university Uh, during this time in the UK. So they've got some big names to do that. Uh, Ed Balls, the former Shadow Chancellor, is doing some stuff on maths. David Attenborough is doing some stuff on science. Um, There's a couple of big EastEnders actors who are doing stuff that would be a much bigger deal in uh, in the UK. Brian Cox is doing stuff on science and the solar system. And although I haven't heard what role she'll have, it does say here that Jodie Whittaker, who plays Doctor Who, will drop in on some of these lessons.
0: Yeah, what's she going to teach? Temporal physics or something?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Or, or whether she's going to be top and tailing them as the Doctor and maybe as a bit of a fun thing, or whether she's doing teaching, I don't know. But good to see Jodie Whittaker is out there and doing that for everybody.
0: Yeah, and she's certainly already been doing some stuff. We have a, on our work workplace, which is like Facebook, but for an internal use only within a workplace, Um we have a Doctor Who group, and some people posted a video on our Doctor Who group there, and it was Jodie Whittaker. It looked like she was in her cupboard at home, and she was like, you know, we're we're hiding at the moment. And we've got to stay quiet, and you know, not go out. And it was it was a whole sort of you know isolation type thing. And I think she's done another better produced ones since then so she's certainly been making little little spots as well in her costume she's certainly got longer hair than she does as the doctor at the moment uh obviously because it's the off season uh unless she comes back to doctor who with longer hair i don't know uh but they've been quite interesting too so she's been certainly getting behind uh, doing whatever she can as well so hats off to jody very very cool how about some short topics dave you got one for us, Rob? I do. I have been watching, and I know about a year ago I said, look, I'm going to have a Devo-fest, Dave, and I'm going to, you know, watch all these Devo TV shows for people who are uninitiated. That's Peter Davison in, in whatever. And I've been watching Campion of late, which is a, a two-season uh, stint he did around 89.90 as uh, the, the TV detective Campion. And I'm really, really enjoying it
1: that's interesting it's not something i've ever seen i remember it being out when i was a kid mm. i'm fairly sure it's the sort of thing my parents would have watched but no i've actually never seen it um perhaps i've been a little bit scared off by some of Davo's slightly earlier sitcom work yeah
0: <laughs> it's nothing like that where, where
1: look he is good generally speaking but um holding the fort particularly is not a very good show <laughs>
0: No, it, it's not. And look, Sink or Swim is very hit and miss as well. Yeah. No, look, Campion is fantastic. Although it is, it's its 30 years ago now. Uh, yeah. So you've really got to take it with a, this is a 30-year-old murder mystery. So it, it's it's directed in a certain way. The music's done in a certain way. It, it has that feel of being a 30-year-old thing. It's It's like watching the really old Miss Marple type murder mysteries. But Davo is fantastic, and on a Doctor Who note, uh, Mary Morris, who was in Kinder as the uh, the Shaman Panner, um, yes, she is in one of these stories. It's the story called uh, Police at the Funeral. If anyone wants to dig that one out, uh, she plays uh, a really formidable sort of matriarch type character in that story. So Davo and uh, and Mary Morris together again <laughs> it was quite interesting. There you go. Yeah.
1: There you go. And a quick one from me as well, Rob. As you know, we don't talk about Big Finish a lot on this podcast. It's something that we have enjoyed in part that we're not sort of regular consumers of. But no. when I was driving around California the other month, I did have a chance to listen to a couple of Big Finish stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, two adaptions, in fact. One of them is Cold Fusion, which is the adaption of The Virgin Missing Adventure, which it's kind of a multi-doctor story but not in that it's not your traditional sort of celebration the two doctors come together type story it's a peter davison adventure in which the seventh doctor just happens to turn up because they're both in the same place at the same time Mm. and it's got all of the davison cast it's got the mccoy New Adventures era cast so Ross Forrester, Chris Quedge that sort of th- uh, th- those sort of characters and this was a really good really well done adaption it's a very cool story I'm listening to it the week before uh, The Timeless Children came out, it was particularly interesting because this story also goes into old Gallifreyan lore mm-hmm. uh, but no, it was a really fun adaption I also listened to the new adaption of the ultimate evil which was one of the mooted scripts for the original season 23 big finish probably close to 10 years ago released some of the others mission to magnus nightmare fair uh, and a couple of others which which i more or less enjoyed at the time but i don't think they could get the rights to the ultimate evil at the time but whatever the, the the impediment it's clearly passed now because it has been released and i listened to it and it is bloody awful oh really it is absolutely terrible. I remember reading the novel and the novel being particularly terrible. And look, the adaption is perfectly serviceable, but the script is just... It's like a bad episode of season one, Star Trek The Next Generation.
0: Ugh, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's like every 60s sci-fi cliche wrapped in 80s format. And uh, it's look, it's interesting in terms of being able to hear what might have been, uh, but I don't think this script would have made it to screen it is truly, truly dreadful um, it's it's cliched it's misogynistic, it's boring so, you know I won't say it was a fun listen, because it was not time, <laughs> and I struggled to get through it but in, in terms of as I say, a piece of Doctor Who history and hearing what might have been in, in that season, before we got Trial of the Time Lord instead, it was a very interesting piece of if you like
0: yeah oh wow okay well there's one to uh to maybe not look out for folks uh, before we move off though dave a friend of the show Dwayne bunny has recently started a big finish podcast called uh the sirens of audio you can find him on twitter at audio sirens at least in terms of the podcast twitter and it's really good he's banging out a lot of episodes and if you've got any sort of interest in big finish give that podcast a spin because he talks about all sorts of different stories and and uh, people appearing on Big Finish and everything. Give it a listen.
1: I will check that out.
0: Mm. Well, that's the end of the short topics. So I think it only leaves one thing, Dave. That'll be the feature topic. <laughs> yes, uh, people, we uh, threw it out to you, a, gosh, a month ago or so now. And we had uh, oh, almost 200 votes, as I recall, over Twitter and Facebook. Uh, would we talk about my choice, Season 16, or your choice, Dave, uh, Season 25?
1: And I've got to say, my choice went out in that first 24 hours to a uh, quite a healthy early lead.
0: It did. It did. I thought for a moment, oh, here we go. I'll just have to dust off my uh, season 25 and that's only four stories. Happy days. Uh, but instead, my one got up and I had to watch a lot more.
1: <laughs> yes, it did. It did. It got up, not, not a landslide, but, but quite a, a handy and healthy win, I thought, for season 16.
0: Yeah, but it does point the way that I think people want to hear about uh, Season 25 as well.
1: Yeah, I have no doubt we will get to Season 25 uh, sometime, maybe even this year, maybe later this year.
0: Yeah, it's a a good chance. You know, if we had that big wedge of um, New Who type stuff, I think think some more classic at this time might be a good thing.
1: So, Rob, The Key to Time, Season 16. Yes. Famously one of only two classic seasons that has a proper umbrella arc. Mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, or certainly a theme. Let's start off. What's your memories of discovering this season?
0: Dave, I would have seen this originally at a very young age because I know I always used to confuse... This will be quite funny. I know I always used to confuse Mary Tam with Frida from ABBA. Um, I had a crush <laughs> on them both. and. Right. <laughs> And I think that shows how long ago I was watching this. Apple was still quite current. On repeat, though, obviously sometime in the 80s, I would have watched it with a more uh, a keener sort of eye. But as a kid, one thing I do remember is that I didn't like the arc nature of the season. I liked Doctor Who going anywhere, doing everything, you know, and just doing its own thing. And instead this seemed to stop every episode And say hey what about that key to time We're doing this mission And I used to find that really boring and cheesy And I didn't quite like it um, I don't know why. To me, it felt like it was constricting the stories, like we were stuck chasing this thing, even though I didn't see the bigger picture, that they still were going all over the place and having adventures. So, you know, I was, I was a bit short-sighted as a kid, I guess, in that respect. Now, it's, it's a little different. I, I, I'm, I feel a lot warmer towards this season.
1: That's really interesting. I first saw several of these stories during the repeat run over the summer in Australia, 87, 88. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't remember seeing them all, but I certainly remember several of them. And this was when the ABC was doing Saturday afternoon repeats about 1 p.m. of the whole story edited together. So, you know, the Ribos operation as one 90-minute story. Mm, The Stones of Blood as one 90-minute story. Okay, I can remember watching a very hot summer. I'm fairly sure it was during the Bicentennial celebrations in January of 88, Mm -hmm. watching The Armageddon Factor as one long two-hour story. And um, my memories of that are not particularly good. I actually don't remember being very interested in this season at all, with the exception, interestingly enough, given what you've said, of being fascinated by this key-to-time concept and and finding the gemstones and putting them together and completing the mission that really gripped me but i found a lot of the stories uh, very dull I, I saw the ones that i missed then in the sort of april may june repeats of 1990 when they're all shown as part of a yet another repeat of the tom baker era on six o'clock on a monday to fridays paired with the goodies mm. no doubt yes. um, although famously i suspect any australians of our vintage will remember this the opening of the new parliament in Australia occurred the evening that the Pirate Planet Part 3 was meant to be broadcast. And rather than just put everything back by episode, the ABC just didn't broadcast the Pirate Planet Part 3. (laughs) And that was the first time I'd ever seen that story. Now, if you watch that story... The episode where they do all the exposition, where they find out that the key to time segment is Calufrax, and that's inside the planet Zanac, and all that stuff, it's all in episode three. So there I was as a ten-year-old, watching this story, and none of the expo- exposition was in that.
0: Is it episode three where we sort of figure out that the pirate captain isn't really the one in charge?
1: Uh, that's in part four, but everything else about uh. what's actually going on is in part three, and again just a little anecdote when i was researching this on broadcast who to make sure my memory of the dates was correct they actually had there and thank you very much the episode of back chat which was the abc's feedback program at the time where my dad wrote in and <laughs> sent an angry letter to the abc complaining that they'd missed the broadcast of this episode so that was a lovely gem from my childhood scene again thank you very much
0: have, have you told your dad you found this?
1: I uh, flicked him a link to it on email, and I'm waiting for his reaction now.
0: Okay. Okay, if it comes through, you've got to read it on air, Dave. <laughs> oh, absolutely, I will, I will. Okay.
1: So, if, if I may, Rob, can I make a general point in rebuttal to something that you said? Yeah. One of the things that I'm looking for in our look back of this season is the way that its conception actually... I think, potentially could make for a more interesting season where where you said you found it a very constrictive format. Mm. Because one of the reasons why Graham Williams decided to put together the key to time, partly he wanted the Doctor to have a motivation after 16 years on TV. He sort of thought, look, we need a reason to keep turning up. Let's give him a mission. Okay. But the other was he said, this forces the production team to have variety. We Mm. can't have every segment or even two segments of this key to time on 20th century England. So we have to push ourselves. We have to have more stories off Earth. We have to make it look like different parts of a universe. And I'm going to be watching to see if that did pay off in terms of what the production team delivered.
0: Okay. Well, look, uh, before we get into these stories, I did want to talk about Mary Tam obviously being the new companion in this series and, and also Graham Williams being the producer. So you've just mentioned Graham Williams. Can I start off by saying about Graham Williams, you know, he gets a lot of stick, you know, it's like, oh, the Graham Williams era, you know, poor guy, um, because he gets brought in, I guess, after this wildly successful period in the show's history, um, and he adopts a leading man who's getting a bit full of himself, and the BBC trying to pull the series back into a funnier, sort of more kid-friendly sort of thing. He's on a hiding to nothing in some ways, yet his era contains things like Horror of Fang Rock, Image of the Fendahl, City of Death, And City of Death, he co-wrote, you know, under a pen pen name, of course. Um, He got Douglas Adams writing for the show and then script (laughs) editing the show. You know, so Graham Williams isn't this sort of bumbling idiot who made some dodgy seasons of the show. I actually think he's quite good, but people tend to remember the misses more than the hits. And so if the show's been on this dream run and then has a few misses, his era sort of subsequently gets smashed for it. But I don't think he or his era is is as bad as fans enjoy general have it
1: i can very distinctly remember being a young fan in australian fandom particularly melbourne fandom back in the late 80s early 90s and the graham williams era generally was t- terrible that was that was the perceived fan wisdom and it was kind of the accepted fan wisdom yeah the era was terrible season 17 particularly was the worst year of doctor whoever it had no redeeming features remember at this time there was no novel of the seed c- there was no novel of the city of Death. And season 17 wasn't repeated here for a long time. Mm. So we didn't even know the City of Death was there. But yeah, this whole era was just written off. And Mary Tam's reminder was kind of written off with it. Whereas Lala Ward was this wonderful companion who went on and she was in season 18 and she was sort of given a legendary status. Mary Tam was kind of forgotten and written off as just a foible of the Williams era. And to me, looking back now, I just find that absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, look. I've already said I had a wild crush on Mary Tam, but but in more general terms, I love the idea of a smart companion who can go toe-to-toe with the Doctor. So in Romana, you have this posh, smart woman. I think it's what Doctor Who needed at the time, you know, and as much as I would have liked Mary Tam to have perhaps done another season, I can also see, though, that a, a companion like that can't stay too long either. You know, if you have someone who is sort of the Doctor's equal, it does get a bit boring, but... As a sort of a contrast to Leela, I think she's just right in this season. She's smart. She looks amazing. Fabulous costumes. You know, she seems very comfortable riffing and, by all accounts, improvising with Tom Baker and not getting blown off the screen by any means with him. And she's actually my favourite of the two Romanas. And a big shout-out here to Stephen from New To Who, (laughs) who is the uh, president of the Mary Tam Appreciation Society. Hello, Stephen, if you're listening.
1: I... Don't know if I'd say she's my favourite of the Romanas. I actually find it these days very hard to split the two of them. I think they both bring great things to the series. Mm. But I do think in fandom generally, certainly in our circles, Mary Tam probably has eclipsed Lala Ward as the better Romana. But but you're right, her performance there, that that supreme confidence, that supreme professionalism, kind of anchors Tom in mm. a really effective way and perhaps in a way that Lala Ward didn't. And it allows Tom to be silly but punctured and then brought back down to earth and actually sort of play that, dare I say, that that straight man to to the funny man. And it works really, really well. There's a real balance between them that I don't think you see with many of Tom's other companions. I mean we know he didn't get on with Louise Jamison. We know that there were very complicated things going on with Lola Ward. <laughs> yes. Very um, you know, he didn't get on with Matthew Waterhouse and and, and the like. But Mary Tam I think he was just ignore of and that brings out some very good performances.
0: Absolutely because uh, I mean let let's admit it he is silly in, in a in lot, lot of parts of this season you know stealing air cars and bye-bye and you know all this <laughs> sort of stuff you know which is great fun but yes he does get pulled back down to earth by her at times it's it's wonderful. Yes so look
1: that's that's my opening thoughts shall we dive in?
0: Let's dive in Dave. Ribos operation.
1: The Ribos operation by Robert Holmes. Directed by George Spenton Foster. Yes. I have come to appreciate this story a lot. Mm -hmm. As a kid, this would be very, very high in the list of stories I just thought was exceedingly dull. (laughs) There was no real monster other than the Shrivenzal in a couple of scenes. I didn't get who the Graffin decay was. I didn't get what Garen was doing. I, I didn't understand this story. Mm. and and I, I i must admit, as a eight year old or a ten year old when I saw this the first couple of times, I was bored now I understand what Robert Holmes is doing. I get who the graphfin decay is, and it's just so so wonderful this idea of this dictator who was just so awful that he's been deposed and spending the rest of his life thinking it's been wrong and it's so good and you know Garen and Unstoff are a wonderful little pair of actors there it looks good uh, I've got other thoughts but I'll let you make your comment, Rob
0: well this is interesting because we, we start off on the same track Dave because I've always found this story unappealing and maybe a bit boring con men are trying to sell a guy a planet uh, okay <laughs> it's not something that excited me as a 10 year old and it's not something that even particularly excites me now even though like you I do see what's going on um, I don't think it's well directed either and I think it's edited very badly as well it's, it's just a bit of a dud story for me, is is my opening gambit. I will add, though, that the future not looking all glitzy and shiny is interesting. You know, this is like medieval Russia or something, and even though the Graffin Decay comes from a more advanced planet, he still dresses in a way that's not out of sync with them, and they're all in furs, and it's snowy and stuff, and it's kind of an interesting sort of place to be. But the story itself, its direction, its editing, oh, yuck.
1: I like this story, I think, more than you do, mm. but I, I don't think that this is one where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I think the whole is precisely equal to the sum of the parts. Some of those parts are very good. Paul Seed as the Gruff in Decay is phenomenal. As I say, Garin and Unstaff, that is Robert Holmes writing characters at his best. Mm-hmm. There's some really clever stuff going on. As you say, the visuals are are really spectacular and some money has been spent there. Does it all come together perfectly I'm not sure it does. The stuff with the Seeker still kind of puts me off. I think the stuff with Binro the Heretic is a nice idea, but yeah, okay. Mm. I I think it's one of those things that if it it clicks for you, it's going to be really touching. And if it doesn't quite, as it does for me, it's just there too long. Uh, lots Lots of stuff I admire. Lots of stuff I admire. Does it all come together quite well? I'm not sure. I enjoy it a lot more than I used to. It's a fun watch. It's not perfect.
0: Mm.
1: I do enjoy the opening scene with the Guardian, though.
0: Yeah, that is good. That is good. Look, I'm, I'll, I'll just add that I'm very undecided on the way the Doctor dispatches the in decay at the end. You know, it's one thing in Doctor Who to have bad guys trick themselves and blow themselves up. You know, that, that's, that's a fabulous Doctor Who ending. But actually putting an explosive in the guy's pocket and blowing him up is, is a bit iffy in terms of the Doctor's character. I think it just goes over the line a little bit.
1: Yeah, you could absolutely justify it, but I think at the end of that justification, you still feel a little bit icky. And let's face it, when you say, but the Doctor had no alternative, that's the situation he was put in, you've got to remember that's the situation the writer put him in. The mm. writer could not put him in that situation. So, yeah, like I say, I don't want, I don't want to sound like I'm a downer. I've, I've really learned to like this story a lot. And if I watch it, as I did for this podcast, The four episodes do fly by. There's a lot to love. There's a lot of lovely moments. I'm not sure it quite clicks.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to The Pirate Planet, uh, written by Douglas Adams, directed by Pennant Roberts. I'll go first here, Dave. This one has grown on me over the years because previously it was in Ribos territory for me and was basically unappealing on the whole but now I tend to to see more in it, maybe like you do with Ryboss Operation. You know, some of the writing is really, really great, uh, which you'd expect of Douglas Adams. And, you know, Douglas Adams himself has said that his scripts never quite came out right anyway. People would see the jokes and really play them up when they probably should have been more subtle and let the joke sort of, you know, just sit there and the audience goes, ah, you know, I see what you're doing there, rather than being so over the top. Certainly, I think if the pirate captain here was played in a more world weary way or maybe a bit more subtle the whole story could pivot around that alone but with him being such a cliche shouty man it sort of sets a tone for this story that's hard to escape Um, and the story sort of wraps itself around that and is a bit silly And, and yes I know how that sounds calling it silly when the whole premise is about a planet eating up other planets but hopefully you get what I mean.
1: I totally do that said this is a story that I quite liked on first viewing when i was 10 and it is kind of perfect in the way that as you grow up as a teenager every time i would watch it again i would find something new in douglas adams script and Mm. i've really enjoyed that about it whether it's just some of those little jokes um that lovely stuff with the induction corridor and newton's revenge which is just hilarious (laughs) um subtle things like where the doctor's saying you might add three point and and get four you know that that's really well done I think it's also a really good example of a script writer taking the premise of The Key to Time and saying, right, we have to do something different. We have to do something original. They can't all just be lumps of stone or precious jewels or something. What's the most outrageous, baffling thing I could do? I know. Let's make the whole segment a planet. Mm. And I love that concept. Yes, it's kind of ended by the Doctor giving a very long, very complicated piece of Technobabble and a bad special effect.
0: <laughs>
1: but I don't care because I've just bought into it. You mentioned Bruce Purchase there as the pirate captain. Yeah. I agree that on the first viewing, it just seems like Bruce Purchase is doing a discount Brian Blessed and it doesn't quite work. But it's a story that on rewatch as you realise that all of that bluster by the captain is just to throw Zanxia off and allow her to dismiss him so he can get on with what he's really doing. I think is really, really clever. And I don't think it quite comes home because we don't get like a final confrontation scene of if you like the real pirate captain telling Zanxia, you know, this is who I really am or just, just mm. showing who you really am. And I think that would have really brought home that all of that by the beard of the sky demon stuff was an act. Yes, And unfortunately, I think that in that sense, Bruce Purchase is the wrong cast member because that's just what Bruce Purchase does.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: But the confrontation between him and the Doctor, that surely is an iconic scene.
0: Oh, yes. The uh, appreciated moment. Yes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, Look, I really enjoy this one. Um, Very, very good story, I think. Okay. Which brings us on to the Stones of Blood, which I have very strong memories of watching as a kid. There are very few Doctor Who stories that actually scared me. Mm. This was one. I think that the augury is a terrifying concept that was actually realised very, very well. The fact that K-9 you know, kind of goes literally to death's door, where the Doctor and Romana talk about putting him down. Yeah. Like, like as a kid, that's like, wow, these things are really bad. That K-9's, K-9's about to die. Like, how, mm-hmm. how bad is this? And it's... It's filmed at night and it's dark and it's again got some clever concepts. I I just love this as a kid, and particularly the scene where the campers get killed. Mm-hmm. That was that was still scary. That was terrifying as a kid. And again, as I've watched it as an adult, I've I've learned more about what's going on. I've learned more about the concepts. I've understood it on other levels. I've got the hand of the Baskerville's references there about all the missing portraits and all that sort of thing. And I think there's layer upon layer in this and As a teenager, I thought the Megara was silly. As an adult, I think they're just perfect, absolutely wonderful Douglas Adams-style bonkers in the Mm -hmm. way that David Fisher does. So I've got literally nothing but praise for this
0: story. Yeah, I'm going to say a whole lot of similar stuff here, Dave, because I've long enjoyed this myself. As as a kid, it was like watching a Hammer horror film for my age group, because it did feel really scary. And you mentioned the scene with the Ogri and the campers. That could come out of any horror movie made now. You know, uh, I mean, it doesn't go into blood and gore, but, you know, just the... uh, I I don't know,
1: that that, that fade to red is pretty suggestive.
0: (laughs) Well, suggestive, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't go quite all the way, but, you know, sometimes suggestion is all you need. Yeah. And this is quite interesting, given that, as I mentioned at the start, Doctor Who had got in trouble for doing all this scary gothic stuff, and we're in the middle of this so-called jokey comedic Williams era, which is meant to be the opposite of all that. And even now, this story gives me chills. So I find that quite interesting that, you know, again, in this era that's meant to be all just jokes and silliness, this story exists. Yeah, it's
1: fascinating that for, for Williams to be dismissed as just a silly producer, Pirate Planet, the, the, the death count in that is literally billions. Billions. Mm-hmm. Yes. This one is incredibly dark. I, I think that says a lot about the fact that he's not just a silly producer strong female performances in this, the, the the baddie, a very strong woman here, Cesar of Diplos and the Kaliaka, whatever yes. you want to call her, and of course, Amelia Rumford, who is just delightful and is and clearly baffling Tom, and Tom is kind of torn between, do I just play up to this or do I play subtle to this, and it's it's a really good combination
0: Yeah, I mean everyone says it But Beatrix Lehman is wonderful in this role And it seems to come up a lot at different times in Doctor Who Like people talk about Maggie Stables with Colin Baker in Big Finish Or Mary Morris with Davo in Kinder Which I mentioned earlier in this episode as well Sometimes these older women give the Doctor something new to bounce off of And a different point of view And can behave in ways that might be more unlikely For a younger woman or man to sort of act I think she's absolutely delightful, and I don't know why we don't do older female companions. I mean, look at the success of Graham in uh, Whittaker's era as an older older guy. You know, I think it's the time is ripe for an older woman in, in Doctor Who to be a companion proper, not just on audio or you know as a as a one off in a single story.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very positive aspect of this that I think a lot of production teams certainly could take a lesson from. I also want to point out that the typical fan comment on this story is. It all turns to, you know, poop in the last half. Well, they actually don't get to the hyperspace v- vessel until three minutes before the end of part three. So, mm. and then they're off offered five minutes before the end of part four. So, they're on it for less than a quarter of the story. So, I think that people who say that have not actually done the maths. And my final comment is I have actually visited the Stones of Blood. I have been to the Roll Wright Stones. Really? Really. They are exactly what you would expect them to be. Uh, it's a really interesting chilling place uh the only thing that you really notice when you go there is that the motorway is literally meters away from them so the way they've shot it to make it look like it's in the middle, middle of nowhere is really really clever
0: and i think something else you would notice is there aren't as many because i think they might have fleshed them out with some uh, some prop ones they did yes <laughs> they did. <laughs> very good let's move on to the androids of tara also written by david fisher and directed by michael hayes This is another one, Dave, that I've always had a soft spot for. I think the setting is good. I think the storyline is easy to follow. I think the location filming looks good. I think there's great action scenes like the sword fighting, you know, a bit of swashbuckling going on. It's just very, very enjoyable and easy to watch. And it's quite refreshing for a change that the next piece to the key is found basically right away. It's a nice twist to what we've had in the first three stories. They, Romana literally goes up and finds it in the first, what, five minutes of the story. And similar to Riposs Operation, again, we have a medieval world here, but with some technology going on. I think it's more convincing here, probably because of the location filming. I think it makes it more real looking and easier to believe in. And I, I have a lot of good things to say about this story.
1: What you said there about finding the key to time segment earlier, I think is another example of different authors trying to do something different with this premise and not all be the same. And David Fisher, particularly having written two stories back to back, I think does get that absolutely right and does do something different. This is, even more than Ribos Operation, a story that I just was bored by as a kid. I just couldn't get into this at all. It was lots of adults standing around talking politics with no monsters,
0: mm. with no,
1: no, you know, no ray guns.
0: Well, you got those crossbows.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're they're not as good as a ray gun though. <laughs> and and I just didn't get it. I, I I just was bored by it, and it really did take until I was a proper adult, like well into my twenties, before I really did start to appreciate this one. And and I think that that's an interesting take on the Williams era that he perhaps in referencing these literary texts more than the film texts that the Hinchcliffe era. Would reference, Maybe there was a slightly less kid-friendly pitch to them. That all said, though, as an adult, I think this is an incredibly fun and enjoyable story. Very, very well cast. Uh, very, very well shot. Great location footage. And I'll add here, I have been to the castle. Castle um, Castle Gracht, or Leeds Castle, as it's known more colloquially. <laughs> um, so that's the second location I've been to in the Keys of Time. Uh, no, it's, it's a wonderful performance. It's very witty. Tom actually is a lot drier here than he would be normally with a witty script which works particularly well count grendel's final retort about next time doctor i shall not be so lenient is he's, <laughs> he's just wonderful and I, I love the fact that he's allowed to escape like we don't need to kill him and we don't need yeah. to lock him up he just gets to go away and maybe they'll have another fun adventure on tara sometime
0: is this, is this the one, Dave... I mean, I've watched all of these in the past week or two, so everything's running together. Is this the one that has the line, please get off my chest, my hat's on fire? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's fantastic.
1: Yes, or the bit where he barters them down on the payment. Just, again, very, very clever, very well played. There's a lot to like here. It is a very unusual Doctor Who story because it does lack a lot of those traditional... Um, kid sci-fi aspects it's it's not a doctor who wants to book story at all but it is very witty and very fun
0: yeah and very swashbuckling you know i like that
1: yeah and with a romance
0: yeah absolutely
1: which again is unusual for Who.
0: it is it is and i think you know back to you know maybe watching things like the android invasion as well maybe to me as a young kid You know, androids with their faces falling off and dodgy mechanicals inside was all what Doctor Who was meant to be to me as a kid. I don't know.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's interesting that it worked for you and not for me in that sense.
0: Yeah, no, I've always liked this one and still love it now.
1: Speaking of things I've always loved and always will, we Mm -hmm. have The Power of Kroll. Okay. Uh, A Robert Holmes story directed by uh, Norman Stewart, who didn't do a lot of Who. In fact, I can't think of another story he did direct. Someone may correct me on that. Mm. I think this is a really good story let down, not even by a special effect per se but by the direction of a special effect. Once again, I think that the conception of the key to time here is really good that Robert Holmes chooses to go into the far future, into colonial earth and and do a bit of colonialisation and and have a message there. He then says, right, well I don't just want the key to time to be another piece of Jethric, I know what if it's inside the giant squid and becomes the giant squid and as a kid, that idea of the key to time, like metamorphosing a squid into Kroll, mm. I totally got that. I thought that was just a really cool, exciting idea. I think the model of Kroll itself looks awesome. Mm-hmm. I think the model work on the location footage looks awesome. Uh, even the model of the refinery, although the bathtub it's in isn't, isn't that good, the model itself is great. But none of those things interact with each other correctly at all.
0: True. Very true. Uh, for me, uh, this isn't the best of the, the season by any means, but certainly not the worst either. Um, and I do think it's the better of Holmes's two stories this season. I just find it more interesting than Rybos Operation. I think it's also better directed and better edited, which was my beef with Rybos.
1: i will agree with all of that.
0: Okay. And I've always been a fan of location work in, in any season of Doctor Who and hear the marsh scenes and the hovercraft stuff. It's more like something from maybe the Pertwee era or something, you know. Um, all of that feels really good. I think the worst I can say of the story is that, for me, it drags a bit. And I know it's only a four-parter. It just feels long and that can dull my enthusiasm for a lot of 60s and 70s who, especially six-parters, seven-parters and so on. But, but here it's a four-parter doing it for me. Holmes's writing keeps me pretty much engaged, though, even if I am looking at my watch. So, again, yeah, not the best, not the worst of the season, but pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm not down on it by any means.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear you say that, Rob, because I actually think there's plenty going on in here, and I'm more or less engaged from start to finish it's got Neil McCarthy in it. It's got Philip Maddock in it. It's got John Leeson in it. It's got mm. John Abernary in it. Mm. Uh, it's got um, the guy who's the captain in um, The Way Back. I can't remember the actor's name, but that doesn't matter. I think there's a really good cast to this. There's a really good idea. But the main point I want to emphasise, again, because we're looking at the whole season, is something you did say you'd like to rob, which is the location footage. Yes. And again, I think this goes back to that challenge that Williams put out to the production team and said, right, we need to make this six very different parts of the universe. So we do get the Roll Right Stones. We do get the Forests and Leeds-, Leeds Castle. We do get a very different location down here. And, and some credit's got to go to a very young production unit manager by the name of John Nathan Turner on this season.
0: Yeah, he's kicking it out of the park here with the stuff he's doing.
1: He really is, isn't he?
0: Yeah, he's... He actually, we didn't we praise uh, a location manager on the last Whitaker series?
1: Oh, we did. We did, on, uh, on Praxius. That's right.
0: And and we said, this this guy's finding all these wonderful locations. What a guy. It's, it's, it's almost history repeating.
1: Yeah, maybe that guy's going to be the longest-serving producer of Doctor Who one day. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but no, look, I, I know Power of Crawl gets a bad rap. I really like this story.
0: Yeah, well, look, like I said, it's not the worst for me by any means. It's not the best either. It's just in the middle for me, so I'm not writing it off at all.
1: Fair enough, which brings us to the thrilling conclusion, The Armageddon Factor. Written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, that perennial Doctor Who writing pair that did about a decade's worth of stories on Doctor Who, directed by Michael Hayes. Yes. This is the inverse for me, Rob, because even though I admit I struggled with this is one omnibus from start to finish, when I was eight, as a kid, I, you know, this wasn't my favourite story, but I, I quite liked it. There were some interesting ideas here. I, I don't think that the planet of evil worked as well as I, I, imagined it when I read the novel. It's a rare occasion for me that, I remember the novel before I remember the, the show. But mm. there was a lot of interesting kind of ideas in here. The shadow was really cool. Drax was kind of funny. The Doctor Shrank, uh, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. As a kid, you look for was kind of there. The older I get with this one, though, the less I enjoy it. And I've got to say, I struggled to get through it on my watch for this. Really? Yeah. I really like, oh, my God, there's another three parts. Okay, well, let's sort of have a break and come back tomorrow and do part four. You know, <laughs> it, it, it really did feel like that for me.
0: I think you've still got some residual uh, angst, Dave, from uh, from that earlier viewing as an eight year old, because I think this is great. Even as a six parter. <laughs> okay, what is it that you like? Look, I I, I think, you know, you start off this really interesting premise, The Two Planets Locked in Warfare. I love the opening, which is this so overplayed thing, and you're like, oh, what the hell's happening here? Then you realise it's a propaganda film. That's something I would have expected from, say, 80s Who, like Cartmel Doctor Who. You know, it's so surprising to see something like that in a 70s episode. I'm always actually surprised when I see it because I, I tend to forget it's there and then I see it again and go, what the hell is this? Oh my God, yes, I love this. Uh, the way the Marshal talks over the TV screens to everybody reminds me a bit of Vengeance on Varos mm-hmm. uh, as well, you know. And, and you mentioned Drax. Uh, the whole thing about the Brixton accent is kind of borderline for me, but the idea of Time Lords out in the galaxy and not always doing big, important or bad, evil stuff that's always had some appeal to me, you know, even if it's not what we're typically shown or told in the past. You know, it's that, oh, if someone goes rogue, it's because they're very bad or, you know, there's something wrong with them. No, this guy's just jobbing around the galaxy. You know, and I, I quite like him as a character. And and again, for a six-parter, I never feel this drags. Is something wrong with me,
1: <laughs> No, if you're enjoying it, that's a really, really good thing. There's something right with you. Uh, I, I think that the opening and, and most of part one actually is the strength... Of the episode, I think the setup of the war is very good. That initial missile attack on the TARDIS is very good. Watching the fleet battles, good. I, I like the Marshall. I like the mystery of what's behind the mirror, and then you see the skull and everything. Mm. Um, I, I then think it does go downhill. I think there's sort of long periods of Canine sitting on a conveyor belt. There's <laughs> long periods of people exploring Zeos, which has no Zeons, which just makes it very uninteresting. Mm. I, I think Mentalis is kind of a cool set but it, it's not that interesting an idea and i think again i would like to have seen some zeons to actually interact with i think that would be more interesting um the time loop is a fascinating concept but uh I, I know my friends and i have many times at late nights at the pub mocked the uh fire Ooh, fire Ooh, fire it's not the most exciting television <laughs>
0: True, true.
1: I do think there's some good ideas. William Squires is really good as The Shadow. That's a really cool idea. It just doesn't grip me.
0: Right. Okay. So we're, we're, we've sort of agreed on a lot of these stories, except this one, I think. Uh, maybe Power of Kroll a little bit.
1: Yeah, I've liked Kroll a bit more than you. You've liked Armageddon a bit more than me. But, yeah, look, I don't want to sit here and kick this story because I think I've I've said what I like about it and what I don't like, and, and that's that. And that, that all that I've got left to say is about the conclusion, which is more about the season than the story. Except, of course, I guess to say that Lala Ward turns up, which is good.
0: That's right. And look, I I really liked that, again, we've had these twists and turns with all the keys. You know, there's something different about all of them. In, in Androids of they found it straight away. That was the twist. But here, it's a real person. Yeah. It's, a, it's a living person who actually is prepared for this and says something like, "It's it's my destiny. And it's like, oh, God, this is actually quite sad. You know, this is... This is the more you think about it, it's quite a heavy thing.
1: I do remember vividly as a kid, even when I was eight, I remember the moment when I watched Astra giving that line about how I am the sixth princess of the sixth house of the sixth dynasty of Atreos, and in my mind going, Oh wow, she's the sixth segment. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like I could remember that as a kid being like just such a mind-blowing moment. And again, I think yeah. it just strength of the season, they, they do find something new and different to do with the segment.
0: Yeah, which is very good. And look, we've spoken all about all the episodes now, so we've got some questions to sort of round things out. I, I'll put this to you first, Dave. Does the season work?
1: So I have two answers here. Mm-hmm. In terms of a season of Doctor Who to watch over twenty six weeks and enjoy, absolutely it's different, it's innovative, it's imaginative, it does more than just go to Earth three times, it's clever, it's got great casting, it works. Does the arc work? The answer's got to be no, because, and they made this same mistake with Trial, and it's it's the most baffling mistake to make. No one sat down before they even started filming the Rybos operation and said, what happens in part six of story 6 Mm-hmm. And it's so, so clear that they've got to, literally, the point where they've written the Armageddon Factor, they've said to Bob Baker and Dave Martin, look, give us 10 minutes at the end of part six uh, and, and the production team will write the, co- the, the code or the epilogue. And so Bob Baker and Dave Martin have gone, yep, cool, right, here you are, our Princess us the segment, they've reassembled the key to time, over to you. And then they've gone, well, the Black Guardian turns up and pretends to be the White Guardian and the Doctor disperses the key. And it's not really clear if it was the Black Guardian pretending to be the White Guardian all the way back in the Ribos operation or whether the Doctor has disassembled the key and it was the White Guardian and there's still a problem. Or what I assumed as a kid was that it was the White Guardian that sent him on the mission. Once the key was constructed, the White Guardian was kind of in the background going, you know, Dooby dooby doo and, and, and fix the problem and then the Doctor disperses it rather than give it to the Black Guardian but it's totally not clear it's totally a mess and the big dramatic conclusion kind of is the Doctor talking to a guy on TV
0: <laughs> yep
1: so 25 great episodes a great production and just a dud ending
0: uh you've you've stolen my thunder here basically (laughs) completely dave because my notes i jotted down in terms of giving the season an arc uh yes i think it's very good i think the concept is introduced better in some stories than others you know in in some stories the reminders about oh we're looking for the key to time seem a bit clunky and shoehorned in but generally it gives the season this shape and this arc and that's and it's wonderful but yeah the ending is very odd you know the black guardian showing up okay that that's kind of a given in hindsight because we've met the White Guardian so here comes the Black Guardian to steal it all but after all that work and just dispersing the key again undoing all that work presumably putting the universe back in the state that the White Guardian wanted to change assuming that was the White Guardian at the start not the Black Guardian playing him uh, it's, it's very confusing and having said all that why would giving the key to the White Guardian be any better than giving it to the Black if their whole point is to balance each other surely neither should have the key you know, I, I'm, I'm very iffy on what the key is and what it can do and why one Guardian should have it over the other, even if he is the nice one, you know? Yeah, and
1: it's also not helped by the fact that they have a different actor play the white Guardian and the black Guardian. So when Valentine Dahl turns up... And look, Valentine Dahl's great, you know, great voice, great actor, you know, all the rest mm. of it. But when he turns up he says, now I'm going to pretend to be the white Guardian by going from black to white, it's like, yeah, but you're still a completely different actor. Like, how's right. that going to fool anybody?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess these are godlike beings can probably appear as whatever they want to appear as, but it would have made more sense to appear like that, you know, old man with the goatee and the wicker chair, perhaps. Yeah,
1: had, had he turned up and been the Black Guardian or had Valentine Dahl sent the Doctor on his mission in the Ribos Operation... I think that would have worked slightly better, but, you know... And if it was a modern series, I think they would have done that, where it's much easier to get actors at different stages and just pull them out into a scene here and a scene there than it was back in the late 70s.
0: You know what is interesting here too, Dave? Tom's like, oh, I knew you were the Black Guardian because the White Guardian wouldn't have been so nasty, you know, about Princess Astra and so on. It's like, well, hang on. If we rewind to the Ribos operation, the White Guardian basically threatens him with with death or making him cease to be or, you know, something if he doesn't do this mission. You know, I don't think the White Guardian's actually a good guy, necessarily, you know?
1: No, and and Graham Williams wrote that prologue to the season. He wrote that White Guardian stuff, and it's very clever. And it does have that moral ambiguity that Mm. I think you don't get when it's just Valentine Dale shouting. So, yeah, I I just am amazed that they went to so much trouble to go, we're going to have this arc we're going to set it up well, we're going to go to all sorts of cool locations. We've thought of really genuinely different and interesting things to do with every segment, more or less. But nobody said, yes. Yeah, so what's the ending? Like, nobody mm. said to them, by the way, guys, in part six of story six, this is how it ends. Yeah. And even Bob Baker and Dave Martin didn't know that when they're writing the Armageddon factor. So I think that's a huge problem that reflecting our review of series 12 last month does reach back and kind of diminishes the 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 season a little bit but i don't want to draw too much on that because otherwise i i do enjoy it and the final point that i wanted to make here is that this is the start of a run of three seasons of doctor who 16 17 18 that i think are all marvelous Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: i'm glad the doctor who is not like them on a regular basis
0: yeah, fair. You know, I'm glad Very they, fair. I'm glad
1: they all exist. I'm glad they all do what they do. This season's arc, season 17's just Douglas Adams season. Season 18's Christopher H. Bidmead's serious science season. I love them all for what they do. I'm glad they're one offs.
0: Yeah, and look for my. Uh regular star wars comment for each episode i think this season is the star wars sequels of doctor who in terms of starting with the story and not really knowing where you're going to end up by the end of it but i'll leave it at that
1: no look that's fair enough um before we go on to our favorite and least favorite stories i just think it's worth mentioning that we've had a lot of regular listeners and a lot of friends of ours actually make a point of saying how much they enjoy this season and they're really glad we're talking about it. Um, And I want to highlight one comment that we had this afternoon from Hayden from the Diddly Dumb podcast who said that Mm. he'd actually been very down on this season and the Graham Williams era in general, but he was watching Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara again recently and he said he was softening on these as well and seeing the fun. Um, And I know that Mark from the Diddly Dumb podcast is, again, the number one fan of the Graham Williams era. So I think they're going to have something to talk about.
0: I think they will. (laughs) Shall we get on to our favourite story and least favourite story? I'll let
1: you lead on this one, Rob, so your favourite.
0: Dave, for mine, I mean, I've made no secret of this in my comments on it, it's Androids of Tara. That combination of location, direction, easy-to-follow story, swashbuckling humor it's all there it's very good I just find it very easy to watch it it's it's comfy slippers viewing for me in terms of this season
1: yeah it was a very easy choice for me as well it's been my favorite ever since I first saw this season still is now that's the stones of blood it's a really good debut story by David Fisher it's dark it's interesting it's well filmed it's brilliantly cast I love the ogri I love the magara I love it everything about this and so yeah i just think it's it's really really good and you know i was just reflecting looking at the list as i was doing this if you could have a season with two stories by robert holmes two stories by david fisher and a story by douglas adams Mm. gee that's good
0: it's a pretty good story it's a pretty good season yeah uh and look dave we both picked a david fisher story
1: yeah we did too i think that says i think david fisher is very
0: underrated in a season where there are two Robert Holmes stories and there is a Douglas Adams story, we picked the two David Fisher stories. We did,
1: yeah. That says yeah. a lot. I think that's really cool.
0: What's your least favourite, Dave?
1: Uh, the Armageddon Factor. Okay. Um, for for I, I don't want to give it another kicking. I, I just think it's a bit dull and, and the money's run out and it, it doesn't
0: work for me. Alright, and for mine, again, no secret, Rybos Operation, I I just don't get into it. I can watch it and say, okay, it's a story, but it's just a bit boring. You know, towards the end, where the Grafton Decay goes a bit mad and starts shouting about his past glories and marches off, you know, that's actually quite good. But, you know, that's only one scene out of four (laughs) episodes. Most of it just leaves me bored.
1: Yeah, no, look, we've got some very different views on a couple of stories then, because Rybos isn't my favourite, but I, I enjoy it. Mm. so Rob final question for our topic of the month what's your one single biggest takeaway from this season
0: I'm tossing out between three Dave and it's 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 hard to, to choose you know is it that Doctor Who can work with an arc structure is it that companions can be as smart as the Doctor you know something that we rarely see you know maybe Liz Shaw was the last one that was approaching Doctorness, um, or is it that the Graham Williams era isn't the disaster it's broadly painted as I think I'm going to go with the latter and say that, you know, this is Graham Williams, peak Graham Williams. This is his middle, middle season. I think it's pretty good stuff.
1: Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with any of the things you have there. My big takeaway is that whilst we like to talk about Doctor Who as being the show that can go anywhere and anytime and do anything, it doesn't always live up to that premise. One of the reasons why I love the Hartnell era is that I think all of its seasons, there do live up to that premise as much as I love the Hinchcliffe years and indeed the Barry years does every season there live up to the premise or is there a lot of doing the same thing a lot of setting on earth yes there are if you look at the McCoyer season 26 is a really good season four stories on earth mm. and I think that this is a season that just demonstrates that when Doctor Who really does stop and go, no, we're going to make a point of going lots of different places. We're going to go to lots of different times, which means we're going to have lots of very different styles, lots of different production values, lots of different settings, lots of different locations. I think that when Doctor Who really pushes itself to be different, you get a season as good as this one is. And I think it's a shame it doesn't happen more often. So that's my big takeaway
0: yeah well there's a note for chris chibnall there you know this past series of doctor who everything was on earth sometimes it looked very different like on a very destroyed earth in some cases or earth in the past but they were all earth stories
1: yes yes yeah yeah
0: anyway dave that wraps up season 16
1: yeah no very very glad to have watched that it's been a it's been a joy
0: Yeah, and I think we'll get on to season 25 sooner than listeners think, you know, maybe even this year, as you say. (laughs) Moving on, we've got three listener emails. One is very short, two are very long. I'll start with the short one because it's uh, replying to you, Dave. This is from Shane Rofe. He had written to us, I think we read it on the last episode, um, he'd written to us before the end of Whittaker's uh, final episode. Uh, I think that one still had to play out and was saying, how much is enjoying things? And then the, the letter ended and we didn't know whether he actually enjoyed the ending of the season. That's right, that.
1: I, I challenged him to give us his one sentence summary of part 10.
0: Yes, so Shane Rowe writes, one sentence, Dave, question mark. Yes, despite all the faults of part 10, Chris Chibnall, all is forgiven.
1: Wow, I'm really pleased that you had such a positive reaction. I'm really pleased about that, 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 Shane.
0: Yeah, yeah, I certainly didn't. Anyway.
1: <laughs> We've got a longer piece of feedback now from Tim Allman. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, I'm afraid i rather missed the boat on your Series 12 review. I'd meant to send you my thoughts, but life in the age of coronavirus rather gets away from you, so I was unable to do so. I'm therefore giving you my review now. Perhaps you'll mention this in your next episode. Perhaps you'll discard my email and my opinion will be lost forever to posterity. <laughs> I wrote to you last year, actually, it was probably the year before, about halfway through the first series of the chibnall Whitaker era, and I think it's fair to say that I wasn't a huge fan. I didn't think it was terrible, it was just a bit meh. This series has been a distinct improvement, but I suspect I'm grading on a curve. I still have major issues with this iteration of the show. One of the main complaints about the last series was that it was too inconsequential. There wasn't enough incident or backstory. There was no overarching plot, no series arc. You can't make that complaint this time around. There's no way of knowing, but I rather suspect Chibnall was somewhat chastened by the reaction to the last series and has almost overcompensated this time around. Now it's all backstory, all series arc. He's gone from one extreme to the other. He had previously tried to avoid fan service. Now it's nothing but fan service. In many ways, as ridiculously entertaining as Fugitive of the Jadoon was, it was almost preposterous in the amount of sheer stuff that happened. Captain Jack, another Doctor, a buried TARDIS. Look at all these lights and sounds. Anything RTD and Moffat can do, Chibnall can do it ten times over. The series finale almost felt like a pastiche of a previous finale. I seem to be alone in not particularly liking Sasha Dewan's interpretation of the Master. He doesn't just chew the scenery, he munched it, digested it, and, well, let's not take that analogy any further. The climax was hugely disappointing, with the Doctor being incredibly passive and not really remotely heroic. Basically, an old man in a cloak comes in and blows everything up, and the Doctor just runs away. What kind of solution is that? A big bomb is the answer? Okay, the Doctor didn't pull the trigger... But just palming the dirty work off to someone else is no proper solution.
0: Can, can I jump in at this point, Dave, and yeah. say, uh, Tim, you're, you're not alone because I didn't like Sasha Dewan's interpretation either you know when he first appeared as the master he was very normal then he went sort of cackling and dancing and strange and i said i hope he's not like this when he comes back and he was exactly like that when he came back and i didn't like it
1: and tim you're also not alone because i said exactly the same thing about the conclusion so (laughs) definitely not alone on that one tim goes on what if the doctor realizing that there was a little bit of her inside every time lord could somehow trigger the simultaneous regeneration of millions of Time Lords, bringing them and Gallifrey back from the Abyss. Wouldn't that or something similar be a more glorious and fitting end than Old Man Blows Up Bomb?
0: Wow, yes.
1: The new canon, with potentially countless previous Doctors we didn't know about, seems a bit silly to me. I'm not incensed by it, but I don't really see what the point is. What difference does it really make? It seems like a big deal, but ultimately it comes across as pretty trivial. Personally, I choose to ignore it. The master lies, the Matrix can be reprogrammed. Perhaps a future showrunner will quietly just bin the idea. Hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said at the beginning, I do think this series has been better, but it's not been great. I've long since come to the conclusion that the Chiminal era is just not my cup of tea. I think that we were really spoiled by having RTD and Moffat as showrunners, two brilliant and talented writers who gave us great television, well, most of the time. Chibnall was always on a hide-into-nothing, trying to follow up these two, because he just isn't as good as them. He never could be. He's not as talented as they are. It's not his fault. There aren't many people working in the business who are as talented as they are. He seems to be doing his best, but his best just isn't that special. None of us know this for a fact, but there seems to be a general consensus building that the next series will be Chibnall's last. I'll keep watching. If there's a similar improvement in series three as there was in series two, that will be great. But I'm looking forward to whatever comes next. That's the way Doctor Who works. If you don't like a certain doctor or a certain producer, you can just keep quiet and wait for the next version, hoping it'll be better. What else can you do? I hope this email finds you well. Regards, Tim.
0: Oh, what a great email there. And look, I find myself on board with a lot of that. And, and that idea of the Doctor regenerating all the Time yes, that, that would have been quite an epic thing, Dave. Yeah. I think that would have been quite exciting.
1: Yeah, and it would have done something with the concept of her being the Timeless Child. Rather than it being a thing that's just a thing because it's a thing, it would have actually driven the resolution of the arc.
0: Yeah, so a oh, great idea there from Tim. Yeah. Uh, our next and final email is from Richard Ravel. He says, hello fellas, hope this message finds you in good health, especially in the current climes. Just wanted to say I really enjoy the show. I've been listening to you for the last three series or so, having come to you via Ian Martin's A to Z of Doctor Who which I'll just break in here and say that's something we play irregularly on, on our feed. Uh, whenever Ian wants to do some episodes, we put them up. Uh, back to the email. Yours is the only Who podcast I listen to. It's good fun, informative about references to the classic series. I've only seen the new Who episodes. And you both display a good deal of common sense and rationality, something that's often sorely missing in fandom and the world in general, it seems. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thank you, We try. Yeah, I've just listened to your Series 12 postmortem. interesting choice of phrase, and I hope you don't mind if I throw a couple of thoughts at you, plus a question or two. You said this series was better and less exhausting than the previous series, which I think you're right about. Though, is that because we had higher standards coming into Series 11? Previous series had loads more action, snappy dialogue, jokes and clever twists. Series 11 had lots of standing around, uninspired talking and bland plots. There was no spark. I know the budget has been reduced, see the aforementioned A to Z of Doctor Who episode S, but that's hardly new to Who, is it? So on the back of this, Series 12 had less to do to impress us. Going back though and watching even a fairly average episode from a previous series such as Father's Day or The Doctor's Wife, let alone something like Amy's Choice, really highlights the gulf in class. I like Whittaker as an actress, but the Doctor Chibnall has written her has has no presence, no power. If I said pick three badass moments for every Doctor, I don't think we'd have too much trouble. But when it comes to Whittaker's Doctor, I'm struggling to think of any. She's fronted up a bit more this series, but then when she's challenged, she falls to pieces again. Ha! I've got the Siberian. What are you going to do about it? Kill Shelley. Oh, okay then. I'm sorry. You can have it back. And don't <laughs> talk to me about her reaction to seeing the Master. Mm. Actually, while we're on the Master, how did he turn up again? Last we saw of him in Episode 2, he was trapped in that weird alien dimension with no way out. Then he just pops through a rift in episode 9 with a smile on his face and a song in his heart, none the worse for wear. It's incredibly frustrating. Like you, I'm not one of those who loves to knock the show. Nothing would make me happier than being able to say how brilliant each episode is. It will be interesting to see what the next series brings. As you said, it seems as if Chibnall has written this series with last series constructive criticism in mind. Hopefully he'll do the same this time too. If I was a betting man, I'd say it's time for Davros to return and I think there'll be one episode where the Doctor defeats an army of evil, sentient cyber vehicles, probably by waving her sonic at them, by spending the last five minutes telling us to look both ways before we cross the road. (laughs) man i've banged on haven't i it looks like chibnall isn't the only one without a red pen keep up the good work and stay safe down there from richard in england p.s if i was to start watching classic who where would be a good place to start ideally at the very beginning i know but i'm too short of time to watch them all hence why i've only just caught up with your latest podcast well dave there's several questions in there where do we start
1: Look, I'm simply going to say, in regarding the bulk of the email, I broadly agree with a lot of what Richard said. I'm not as strong as him on some of those thoughts, particularly about Jodie, for example, but the broad thrust of what he said I pretty much agree with.
0: What about in starting to watch Classic Who? Where should he start?
1: Uh, I think that there are probably two places I would start, either at the start of the Pertwee era, or if you're really short of time, at the start of the Tom Baker era. Really? Yeah, I think that that sort of Pertwee-Tom era really is kind of the high point of the series and it's very easy to get into so whether you perhaps watched a season of Pertwee and then a season of Tom and back and forth, I think that could be good but if you have the time to watch the five Pertwee series and keep going with Tom, I think that would be classic and that's kind of how I got into Doctor Who with 80s repeats
0: Hmm I think I'd kick off a bit later in the Tom's era, maybe not his first season, maybe his second. Really, your third, maybe. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Just around there, because again, maybe that's where I started, and I have sort of a soft spot for it myself.
1: Well, I think Richard, that gives you a couple of good options. But look, if you start anywhere in the year or the first half of the Tom Baker era, I think you're on pretty solid ground.
0: Mm. and the question on how the master turned up again i think like a lot of master returns which has been happening way back even in the classic era richard so you won't have seen this the master often returns with no explanation you see him gosh there's a davo episode where he's burned up and uh, you think well that's the end of him and then he just pops up again you know a few stories later that's <laughs> just what he does yeah look i think you're right rob All right, Dave, that just leaves us to talk about what we're going to do
1: next month. So it's been over a year now, Rob, since we did our last look in depth at a Doctor Who writer. And we decided to do it again. And I made a particular request as to which writer to do. And you are happy to indulge me. Mm. And that is the creator of the Daleks himself, Terry Nation.
0: Yes, we're going to look at Terry Nation in a deep dive for our end of May episode. I'm, I'm quite looking forward to this. I've, I've got a bit to say about Terry Nation, actually.
1: Oh, I have as well. I think that there's actually a lot to say. And uh, I think it, yeah, I think it's going to be a good discussion. I'm already looking forward to it. Mm. Before we go, Rob, um, a lot of people who are fans of Doctor Who, particularly here in Australia, are also fans of The Goodies. And at the time of recording, it's just a few days since... Tim Brooke Taylor from The Goodies Passed Away, which was Mm. very sad news, I know, for both of us and for many of our friends. Mm. Um, As you know, Rob, uh, myself and Richard and and Robin and Tom and a couple of others used to do The Goodies Pirate Podcast, and we asked our listeners for some comments and thoughts and memories of Tim and, and, and of Tim's passing, and we were flooded with some, you know, just wonderful comments and memories, and we put together a bit of a tribute episode of The Goodies Pirate Podcast for Tim, at the time this episode of the Doctor Who show goes out, that episode either will be out or out in the next couple of days. So, if you are a fan of the goodies as well as Doctor Who, and you'd like to join us in our um, tribute to Tim Brooke Taylor, I'm keeping an eye out for that.
0: Yeah, I didn't ride in with anything for that, Dave. But I, I, I've got to say it's because I was just dumbstruck that that Tim Brook Taylor Tim Brooke Taylor was taken by coronavirus. Like what? Like. Mm. It, it actually hasn't sunk in for me properly yet. It yeah. just seems so so bloody stupid and ridiculous that I I still haven't really come to terms with that myself.
1: Yeah, I know exactly how you feel, and that's something yeah, we do talk about on our episode.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, on, on that note, uh, slightly down note, I'm afraid, uh, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time for Terry Nation. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.